Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Tim McFeely. From June 1989 to January 1995, Tim McFeely served as the executive director of the Human Rights Campaign in Washington, D.C. Prior to his service at HRC, Tim practiced law in Boston from 1972 until 1989, and since leaving HRC, he has led and consulted with other mission-driven nonprofit organizations advancing social justice causes. Currently, Tim is an executive search consultant and lives with his husband in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I welcome Tim McFeely to Savage Minds. The era of 1989 until 1995, when you were at the HRC, was a very important moment for me in time because I had just, the year before, in 1988, moved to New York City. I got very active politically within various human rights groups, one of which was ACT UP. And we were still in the throes of the AIDS crisis at the States at that time. Could you speak a bit about what you were doing at the human rights campaign in Washington, what the mandate was and the important issues of the day during your time. Yes, thank you. Um, it, it is quite a long time ago, but a lot of this is pretty vivid. Um, in 1989, of course, um, I came to the human rights campaign as its executive director in June of 1989. Um, there was one big, huge item on the agenda, uh, and that it was um, having the federal government do something positive about HIV AIDS. Um, it was a life or death um, uh, priority, of course. Uh, people were dying, and the federal government was not doing much, neither were the state government. Um, so it, it superseded all other uh, issues. There were other issues, of course, on the agenda around employment discrimination and so forth. Um, sodomy laws were still in effect in many states, essentially criminalizing um, sex between uh, consenting adults. Um, but the major overriding uh, priority uh, was, um, was HIV AIDS in terms of discriminating against people who were sick uh, in terms of investing more money in cures and prevention um, and um, and really getting people in involved in a, in a positive way and not a negative way. By 1989, it was the end of Reagan's time in office. And if I recall correctly, Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until his last year in office. So we're talking about a president, even though he was in Hollywood in his earlier years of life, bizarrely <laughs> was very good friends with Rock Hudson, who sort of marked that era as well as Randy Schultz says, there was AIDS before Rock Hudson and there was AIDS after Rock Hudson in the way that Americans came to see the disease. And then you have this president who, despite his personal knowledge of people suffering with AIDS, put, for instance, Legionnaire's disease and cures on the table long before that of AIDS. What was the biggest challenge around AIDS with the HRC at the time? Was it medication? Was it other aspects of health care? Yes. Um, well, there were so many aspects of it. I mean, um, on, on the one hand, 
um, <clears throat> we wanted to uh, find resources to help people who were suffering um, and who were having these opportunistic infections. Um, in, in addition, um, in trying to prevent uh, and educate people was pretty difficult if no one, if the leaders would not even speak speak the name. Um, Reagan was a genius at um, compartmentalizing and projecting an image uh, publicly that um, you know didn't didn't acknowledge uh, his own private um, his own private feelings and contacts with people in Hollywood and elsewhere who who um, you know who were suffering or who knew people who were suffering. Um, it, it was a matter foremost of, of science. I mean that that was that was the only way to uh, find our way out of this. Uh, but um, equally important is education, um, education around uh, prevention, education around stigma, education around, um, uh, you know, uh, the, helping people and their families um, who had this disease. So many people um, in the closet um, came out during that time because they they, they became sick. Um, and um, many, I mean, the stories are replete uh, where many people um, suffered alone, their families abandoned them, uh, their friends abandoned them. Um, and um, if they were lucky, they, you know, they, they had some healthcare providers who, who understood, uh, but many didn't. And, and, uh, and it was uh, very tragic. And people, people simply were, were dying. I mean, the, I feel lots of things. Later did work in the 90s with gay men's health crisis when the demographic of AIDS was changing. And that would have been towards the end of your time at the HRC when Crixivan hadn't yet received uh, FDA approval, but it was on the verge of getting there. And these were protease inhibitors as opposed to the older treatment of AZT. What changed for then what you were doing at the organization? Also, I should mention around 95 and even 94, the demographics of who was struck hardest by AIDS shifted, where AIDS started to go into much more into the heterosexual community, largely in the U.S., the Latino and African-American communities. Yes, that's absolutely right. I'm backing up from, uh, backing up from uh, 94 a bit. Um, you know, in 89, uh, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush became president. He did talk about AIDS. Um, he, um, he was being pushed um, by some of his supporters in the business community because businesses were uh, affected uh, as their workers um, became ill. So there was, uh, there was a change at that point. Um, he was talking the, the words, but he wasn't putting a lot of resources in it. What I wanted to get to was that there was a critical election in 1992 for president, and um, and the um, the gay community was very much behind um, Bill Clinton, and he was elected, and he was courageous in the sense of of not only talking about HIV/AIDS but talking about the role of the federal government in in, in pushing this forward. Um, and you know, uh, it, it really was a it really was a, a change. Now, back in 1990, uh, under under um, Bush, um, certain things did happen. I mean, that that was the year that the Ryan White Cares Act uh, was passed, 
uh, that provided direct um, federal money to cities that were severely impacted, such as New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, others. It was uh, it was a great victory. It was a bipartisan uh, supported, and it was it was signed by the president um, and named after this young man. Of course, not about not not a gay person. It was much more uh, much more acceptable to name it after a child who had a blood transfusion um, and uh, contacted HIV. That was Ryan White, right? Yes, Ryan White Act, right, 1990. Also in 1990, um, collaterally, but importantly, um, the federal government uh, passed the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which protected people with disabilities from employment discrimination and other forms of discrimination. And within that act, within the um, Americans with Disabilities Act, um, was uh, uh, people with HIV were, were protected. Um, the ignorant people uh, tried very much at the last minute to carve out an exception uh, for people with HIV who, who were in the food industry. In other words, waiters and, and chefs and, and people who might work in restaurants. This was all pushed by the National Restaurant Association because there was a stigma around um, that they felt people wouldn't come to restaurants if they thought that they might can't contact um, HIV. I, 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 you know, humorously, uh, I, I don't think people were having sex in restaurants, but um, they, the, the stigma <laughs> and, the, and the ignorance there was that, oh, if someone touched my plate, I could, I could become infected. Um, uh, back to the main thread here, the, um, as, this, as this legislation, the American Disabilities Act was um, almost finished, um, uh, the, the, the ignorant people uh, tried to um, carve out this exception uh, for people with HIV. Um, we fought that and we won. Uh, it was a great victory. It, it, it sounds like a very small piece of the action, but it was more than protecting these workers and making sure they were covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was all about stigma. It was all about education. It was all about um, making sure people understood that you know, um, people were not getting not getting HIV through normal contact um, uh, with with their with their neighbors and, 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 and people that they might come in contact with. So, those are two very important pieces of legislation in 1990. That was signed by you know by Bush. Um, 92 was a was a was a change with with the election of Clinton, and more money started to to flow into. Um, into cities through the Ryan White Care Act and also through um, through the um, investments at the uh, National Institutes of Health. Can you speak more broadly to some of the issues that the HRC was dealing with at the time outside of AIDS? For instance, lesbian and gay rights was something that was on the table from the beginning, but were bisexual rights on the table or did those have to be introduced as well? Um, there was no explicit movement about bisexual rights. They, they, people were included. The issues came up. Um, it was, <clears throat> it was, um, you know, it was analyzed as well. Bisexuals are are discriminated against and face uh, hardships to the extent that they're identified as ho homosexual. Um, nobody, nobody was discriminating against them because they were um, in those moments of of their life that they were heterosexual. I, th I think it was, you know, that aspect, they were sort of like 
almost homosexuals, so they were also being discriminated against. Um, that may not be acceptable to bisexuals. I, I, I fully embrace the idea that people do have, you know, do have sexual orientation <clears throat> that that are not, you know, that are not bipolar or that are not that are not exactly, um, you know, one one or the other on the scale. But there were other issues. Um, a big issue that came up in in ninety two and ninety three, which was it had been around for a while. It's, it, it ties a little bit to your question, uh, Julian, about bisexual coverage. And that was um, the so-called gays in the military. Um, so this arose not through the agenda of HRC or others um, in particular. There was always a task force or uh, an initiative that was largely powered through the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, as well as the National Organization of Women and other feminist groups um, around gays in the military. And I say other feminist groups because um, what, what was happening was that women in the United States military were being sexually harassed. And if they didn't, um, if they resisted, uh, the uh, overtures, if you would say, or the assaults of men uh, in the military, they were often labeled lesbians. Um, some of them were. Um, <clears throat> and um, whether they were or were not, this was a, this was a, a major concern for uh, feminist organizations because the United States military was a very, um, was a very uh, important way uh, for women of color and women who came from limited means who were poor and weren't able to secure an education, for them to enter the military and get an education, get ahead. Um, it was an important pathway. Um, so this case in the military came up. Um, and, but it came up largely, not because of that, that effort, which was you know, simmering in the background, but largely because of lawsuits that individual um, military uh, personnel brought against the federal government, against the military, uh, to when they were, you know, if they were found out to be gay, they were uh, discharged and then lawsuits followed. And the, you know, the one that I remember most was uh, in the, in the Minehold case um, in 1992. And it was decided right after the election of Bill Clinton and a reporter asked Bill Clinton, what do you think about Judge Hatter's decision in the Minehold case, which declared the policy illegal and constitutional, um, Clinton said he agreed uh, with the judge and that they should be allowed to serve. Uh, and the, you know, the proverbial fat was in the fire. I mean, that just blew up. Um, it wasn't a major issue during the campaign, but it became a major issue in the winter of 92, heading into the inauguration of Clinton in January of 1993. That took us way off track to that that issue became the burning issue for the first six months of the Clinton administration. When in fact, you know, the plan was, the strategic plan was get Clinton elected and then really push on the HIV AIDS agenda to get more money and to get support. And, and we, we, you know, we, we felt that was, um, that was logical and it was necessary. It was a priority. But all of a sudden, this other issue came up. And of course, the Republicans did everything they could to, um, you know, to, 
to disable or to um, to um, attack the the new president with this what they perceive to be a very very unpopular position. So yes, that was that was sort of a, a, a an issue. It, it it was fundamentally based on the you know the discrimination issue um, that gays and lesbians should not be discriminated in employment, including military uh, careers. Um, so it was it, it was something we could not ignore. It was really very important. But that took us down a pathway that um, that really used up our resources, money, personnel, and um, you know put put things on put things about HIV/AIDS sort of in the background. I I um, I remember when when they finally came out with the um, uh, with the don't ask when Clinton came accepted the don't ask, don't tell policy that was crafted by Senator Nunn um, and was a terrible policy, but it got, it, it, it ended the debate for a while by adopting this policy. When he did that in, in, uh, in July, I think July 21st or something like that, in 93, I went along with others um, to the White House to protest. Um, we were arrested. And when we were arrested, um, and put into the uh, to the police wagon. AIDS protesters, your act up friends, uh, were chanting, "Throw the key away." Uh, and the reason was, and they were they were right. They they were right. The, the reason was they were furious that these you know gay organizations. I was going to say powerful. We weren't that powerful, but it was all we had, right? Um, were using their resources on this military issue and not the AIDS issue. And so they were angry at me and other leaders and the organizations for not getting our priorities straight. And as I say, they were right. You know, in, in our defense, it was very hard to ignore what was on the front pages around the uh, military. And did the HRC respond to that by changing priorities? No. Okay. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, no, we couldn't change the subject, uh, Julian, because it was so much on the minds. It was. It was a. It was a. It was a powerful issue for people um, about you know. They had relatives in the military, or they served, and thinking that they were going to be in close contact with homosexuals, whether it was lesbians or gay men, um, was just, you know, was just sort of this, um, you know, issue that people wouldn't let go of, um, and the media didn't let go of, and um, and our community pushed it. I mean, this was this was a huge issue, and I will say. It, ra- it was it was the issue that raised money for us. So now we weren't going to change priorities. We had so many fundraisers and raised so much money by saying we're fighting for you, we're fighting to allow gays and lesbians and to serve them. It was a very emotional issue. People, you know, they put on their you know their phony dog tags and danced all night. Um, and contributed lots of money because um, this was a huge issue. And in the meantime, 
HIV AIDS went kind of on the back burner. Or I, I won't say it went wet to the back burner. It stayed on the back burner. It didn't get it didn't get it didn't get moved up in terms of priorities the way this because it was it was superseded by this issue. But then we have the protease inhibitors uh, that like indinivir, crixivan, et cetera, were the new hope following AZT, AZT proving to be helpful to far fewer than in the end indinivir was. Finally, it received FDA approval in 1996, and the world of AIDS was forever changed, as you well know. Now, you were no longer at the HRC after 1995, but as a Fellow member of the gay community, you saw the changes, I'm sure, where the 80s was marked largely within the gay community, aside from organizing and protests, red ribbons. Then there were the flags and the quilt project, as you recall, in DC. That was in the 87, 88 era. Then Crixivan on the market by 96. And pretty much that was the death knoll in a lot of organizations' mandate to tackle AIDS within the gay community. Because as I mentioned in our phone call the other week, I was doing research, sociological research for the gay men's health crisis in New York, where they had a huge struggle to face because their principal clientele were gay men. For several years, it was no longer gay men. It was African-American, Latino, New Yorkers living anywhere from Harlem to East Harlem to the Bronx. Huge numbers of their clientele came from there and they were heterosexual. And they were women. They were no longer gay men, basically. And they were no longer white gay men. So I did a lot of focus groups because G GMHC wanted to know if they should change their name from gay men's health crisis to something else. Now, it ended up being a wash in a sense. They, we got the data yeah. to them. We were able to show them that right. indeed we had people, this one woman who's no longer amongst us, I'll never forget her, a Puerto Rican woman. And she said to me one day, until I had AIDS, I never thought in my life I would have anything in common with a white gay man from Nebraska. And she saw her children die, she died. And this project took me to other places because until that point, my work with AIDS was uniquely about gay men, not just white gay men, my brother died of AIDS. But I'm thinking about the way that NGOs had to suddenly shift mandates as well. Because when you have a mandate, any gay organization at the time couldn't leave AIDS off the table because that was the primary issue within the gay and lesbian community of our day. So what happened then when we've got all of these issues suddenly lifted in severity because of Crixivan and because of age education, gay men were fewer and fewer getting infected, and but the infection rates were rising in heterosexual and poor communities. So all of these symbols of the gay community based around AIDS from the quilt to the ribbon and even the flag. I mean, people see the flag today and think of it as only the gay flag, but at the time in the eighties, if you recall, it was sort of like the light at the end of the rainbow too. I mean, yes, Dorothy, yes, Stonewall riots. Okay. The, the rainbow part, but there was that glimmer of hope 
what changed within your final years at the HRC when maybe AIDS was less important, certainly after you left, but let's say 94, 95, what were some of the issues facing an organization that was to look straight in the face at issues affecting lesbian, gay, and bisexual men and women? Yes, um, there definitely was a change and science was conquering um, some of the, uh, of the issues and the demographics were changing. <clears throat> we continued to uh, work on lobbying issues of funding largely. Um, uh, but, you know, by then the, uh, the sort of the political establishment at the local level was uh, kicking in to get resources from the federal government. Um, New York City, for instance, you know, was lobbying um, not just for gay men, but for all the other people who were suffering from AIDS. And so that, that sort of kicked in and that was much more um, powerful than we, we, we it go, I'm going, I hate to go back to this, but it, the gays in the military was, uh, you know, and I don't know where the expression came we, from, but we had our clocks cleaned. In other words, we were, we were, uh, we were defeated um, with that. <clears throat> and it really threatened almost, it was almost an existential issue for the human rights campaign. Um, and we had to regain and say, well, um, HIV AIDS is, um, is, is not, a, is not um, we're not the only ones carrying this now. We, we have allies. Um, and we lost on the military. So what are we going to do? What is our priority here? Well, we went back to the basic discrimination uh, issue um, around uh, employment. Um, what we had heard during the uh, military debate was, uh, why are you asking the federal government not to discriminate at the, in the military when private employers, you know, General Motors or, or AT&T or any private employer can still discriminate? Why don't you, why don't you get, take care of that first? So we thought, yeah, that's a good idea. Several states, of course, have passed non-discrimination laws, but we needed a national one. And so um, we, we, uh, we created a strategy um, that was different from what had gone on before. Before, the anti-discrimination law was basically uh, an attempt to amend uh, the Civil Rights Law of 1964. That was um, discouraged and wasn't really moving forward. So that's when we um, we uh, uh, worked to introduce the uh, Employment Non-Discrimination Act, ENDA, uh, into Congress in um, toward the end of 1993, early 94, um, with the imprimatur of the uh, Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. Um, which was important because they carried all the, that was a coalition of all civil rights groups. Um, and, um, and this became a priority for them and their lawyers worked on it. And so to answer your question, we shifted and said, we have to put resources now into ENDA and passing, um, you know, passing legislation that protects people nationally uh, from discrimination and employment. Something, by the way, and then what about when I speak with lesbians, particularly lesbians tell me that in organizations, not yours, they're speaking in general, a lot of them say we've never felt welcome within gay and lesbian organizations, because even if they put us linguistically first in the title or subtitle, we're very little centered in some of the policies. 
Did the HRC at the time face criticism about excluding women's voices? Absolutely. Yes, appropriately so. I mean, <clears throat> there were some very powerful women involved in HRC before me um, and during my time and, and subsequently. Um, uh, Vivian Shapiro was chair of the board in New York City, um, Hillary Rosen in, in, in Washington. These were board members. Um, but when I was hired, um, I was hired and the, um, there were, there were choices. The board did not, when they hired me, they did not hire a lesbian. Um, and many people felt that, um, you know, after three white men running HRC, um, Steve Dean, who founded it, then Vic Basil, then myself, that it was time to, uh, you know, that women were being left out. Um, and, um, you know, we put on a, uh, a very um, appropriate and important uh, push to hire more lesbians on our staff and to um, to uh, recruit more uh, more lesbians for our board. I think our board uh, was was fairly um, equal in terms of gender um, diversity, um, but. Uh, um, the, the, what it comes down to, so we paid lip service to it, and it was important, and we wanted lesbians to feel welcome. The lesbians have been extraordinarily important in the fight against AIDS and HIV. They, they, you know, they, they, they were, they were there. Um, they were fighting with us. Um, so there was no, there was no conscious. Um, at least that I'm aware, there was a conscious bias that was acted upon to let's keep the women out. That was a part of it. What happened was, there's so many things in politics in the United States, it's all about money and power. Uh, power comes along with money. So, um, so um, my organization, and I think others as well, was largely supported by gay men um, in terms of financially. Um, and we would say, yes, women's issues are important, um, but, um, but, you know, there was always the but. Um, this is where the money came from. So they didn't, they didn't have that power. Um, I'll give you an example of, of where this, um, it, take, it takes a while to get through this story, but there's a point to it. I'll try to, uh, I'll try to telescope it. Um, we had a strategy at HRC called, um, that was through the Fairness Fund, um, that were that used um, old-fashioned <laughs> today looks old-fashioned Western Union telegrams. So this is the days before an email, before texting, before Twitter, before these kinds of social media. And what we would do is we would ask people at gay prides and so forth to sign up in advance and authorize us to send messages on their behalf through Western Union to their specific congressperson on AIDS on issues that affected the gay community. <clears throat> um, and th this gave us a powerful tool because oftentimes votes would come up and you didn't have enough time to communicate out to the community and then people to write letters or send their own to know We had sort of a bank that people authorized that we could use. Okay, so that was the strategy and it worked really well. And we could, you know, we could send 22 emails to a congressperson from people in their district, and that's a lot. That, I, mean, I, I just made up the number 22. It could be 222, um, but we had these. Um, okay, so that was fine. 
So there was an issue, an issue came up around reproductive health uh, and the anti-abortion thing or something like that. And I said, we should use these messages to oppose this bill or to support women. Um, this, this was a woman's issue. This was a lesbian issue. This was a feminist issue. And we had a roaring argument inside HRC about whether or not we could, we were authorized to use these messages that were pre, pre-authorized by our constituents and paid for on an issue that, quote, was not a gay issue. And I just finally had to, I listened to the debate. I said, well, we're going to. And we did. And we paid a price for it. I mean, there were there were many gay men, you know, who said, I didn't authorize you to send a message on my behalf, you know, for this. This is an important issue, but I didn't, blah, blah, blah. So it, we, we took a little bit of a hit for it. But overall, overall, it was supported. That's one specific example of where, you know, I and the organization had to make a decision that um, there were allied interests. And we, uh, when we talk, if, if we truly are an organization that supports uh, lesbian rights, it's got to be, um, you know, it's got to be, um, we've got to use the tools that we have to support them. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. After you left, you did some work in executive search consultancy. You live in Provincetown. You live, in fact, in what many people have never seen, which is a sort of idyllic gay paradise, something I saw glimpses of, not Provincetown per se, but Fire Island and other areas. I also lived in New York, spent a great deal of time between the then gay center of either the West Village or Chelsea, but also I saw the fragmentation of these divisions, these ghettoizations between gay and straight worlds over the years I lived in New York, where as Clinton took office, as certain policies moved forward, AIDS became less of a death knell. I saw more of a laissez-faire attitude towards people who were anything but heterosexual. More and more, I'm speaking of New York, of course, not small town Ohio, People did not care. And dare I say, when I moved to New York in 1988, most people didn't care who was gay or straight because it's New York. But you could feel that more and more the country was loosening up as you would move in and out of the city or people would come from small town Illinois to New York. You'd get a feeling that things were changing around the country. But one thing didn't change were these organizations that were set up to look out for our rights, not just HRC. GLAD grew in size and prosperity. The HRC, I think, has a budget that you would not recognize today. It has grown beyond the ideals of the original years of these organizations where let's try and do this one thing and then that one mandate, once accomplished, grew into other mandates. So since the late 90s, 
These organizations, including organizations in other parts of the English speaking world, like Stonewall in the UK, had other mandates to meet. And while I was out of the US in the late 90s, one of the mandates that was added to the human rights campaign was the transgender identity movement. And this is something, again, that lesbians have spoken to me about at length because they don't understand how gay rights organizations added this. Meanwhile, for the years they had been part of these organizations, they fought for visibility. So to them, given that at the time, most of the transgender lobby itself was composed of mostly males who identified as not, they felt, these lesbians felt quite slighted by the fact that once again, they get not only second place on this menu of human rights, now there was a new lobby getting the second place after gay men, and they were at the bottom. Now, to repeat, you are no longer at, at the HRC, and many organizations, even in New York City, to include GMHC, started to cater more to the transgender group. Now, this causes problems within parts of the gay community, largely the lesbian sector of women who either feminist or not, but they feel like, hey, this has nothing to do with being gay. And this started to be something questioned by very few. I was not one of those few who questioned. I was busy doing queer theory. I was studying, doing my graduate work in New York, teaching queer theory, in fact. But then things went a bit awry in the 2000s, in the early knots, when these organizations were vocally going after a certain target that even excluded any mention of gay or lesbian men and women. You can see on the GLAAD website today, for instance, that most of their mandate is uniquely about transgender identity. They barely say anything or barely they have the word mentioned of gay or lesbian, hardly. And that is reflecting a larger consensus amongst other LGBT organizations around the country and again, around Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc., where gay and lesbian rights have been bizarrely viewed as already done. We've ticked that box, they're finished, they're good. Despite high rates of suicide amongst gay and lesbian youth still, somehow that's been something that's been considered officially or not figured out. And transgender narratives have been put on the table, depending on the organization, anywhere from around 98 through 2010-ish. In that area of about a dozen, 12 years, organizations have started to embrace this other agenda. Now, this goes hand in hand with the fact that many lesbian, gay, bisexual youth, adolescents, young adults, have also themselves differently conceived of what sexuality means to them. Can you talk about what you've observed in terms of how the AIDS era sort of cemented this idea of sexuality, even to the point of bending to say, okay, bisexuals, you can come in. <laughs> it wasn't always a welcome and warmy, fuzzy feeling for them, by the way. And then to the more recent years, post 2000, of these very same organizations that have even, I wouldn't say formally, but they have hand-waved in other groups like transgender peoples 
because they've unofficially deemed that we have more rights and we need to work on this group's rights. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I don't know um, how to unpack that. And again, you know, as you as you pointed out, you know, I, at this point, I'm an observer. I'm not. A, I'm not a leader. I'm not a participant. Um, as an observer, it did come on surprisingly strong. Um, I think the, um, you know, my hat is off to in terms of admiration around politics for the way the trans community has leveraged, you know, they're not, you know, they're not a big community. They don't have a lot of power, but they've leveraged what they have. Um, and largely through what were traditionally um, gay and lesbian organizations like HRC, uh, because they work, they are powerful organizations. And um, and while the trans community have have you know um, have created and um, and and fostered their own their own unique organizations, which is great. They really wanted to be um, part of, if not, you know, one of the top priorities in terms of issues for organizations like GLAD or HRC. And you've mentioned others in other countries that I'm not familiar with. Um, it, I don't know that it's surprising or not. I mean, I, I, I guess, um, I guess. Let me let me make the case both ways. It, it, it's not surprising when an organization that was really formed and grew around the fact that people who are different in terms of their sexual orientation need protection um, becomes um, welcoming um, and, 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 a, and, a, and a, an equally welcoming place for people who are different uh, along another spectrum, which is um, gender identification and gender expression. Um, and um, it was like, you know, the, the word queer is one that embraces all that. We're different, we're queer, we're odd. Um, it used to be because um, we were men who wanted to have sex with men, or we were women who were attracted to other women sexually and emotionally. Um, but then there are these, these other folks um, who have, um, who have uh, um, gender identity that, that are not, you know, that are not um, um, being recognized, and, um, and they're queer, and so of course they should be part of us. Now, the other side of the argument is the gender identity issue is, is one that should should have been logically um, embraced by feminist organizations, at least for the um, MTF. So, I mean, if if people are being discriminated against because while born male, they identify as female and they want to present to the world as female, and even uh, undergo um, transformative surgeries, um, their rights should be protected by a feminist organization. Um, I don't know what the comparable would be for, um, um, I, I think you can fit that in uh, as well for um, uh, FTM, uh, for uh, women who, 
who um, people who are born um, as women um, and, and, and raised as women who would really identify with them as males. Um, and uh, again, this, this is a, a, a different expression of, of their rights. So it's a gender issue, um, not a sexual orientation issue. So that, so th those are the two sides of the argument. The one, the one side being we, we welcome, we welcome um, the trans community because they're queer, and we understand what it means to be different, i.e., queer. On the other hand, the other side of the argument is this is not our issue. This is an issue of gender. This is an issue for women's organizations to deal with. You can imagine, though, I mean, you also <laughs> come from that generation where youth, kids, adolescents were told that they weren't really gay. They were the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. So in this current era where you're having this combating ideology between gay conversion therapy has been outlawed in these states, that was gay conversion therapy, mind you. Now you have this notion that there's such a thing as transgender conversion therapy, meaning that if a therapist tries to speak to a young kid, he says that he feels like a girl, but it turns out he has homophobic parents who think that any boy who's gay must be a fairy. I'm using, you know, in quotes, of course. And that therapist, if that therapist tries to address that maybe this kid has internalized his parents' homophobia, that therapist can go to prison in the states where this is being adopted. And so you have a very combative situation between two types of conversion therapy. One that tries to fight off any therapist who would suggest that kids are not gay, that they should pray more or just be heterosexual because that's the way God wanted it. That's the old school gay conversion therapy, as opposed to what the trans advocates are saying is transgender conversion therapy. Someone saying, hey, you're 16, you're attracted to boys, and you're saying that you feel like a girl and you have homophobic parents or you have a homophobic surrounding, et cetera, et cetera, and you're not allowed to talk about that. So there's a real conflict in the terms of what some of this newer lobby is bringing to the table represents a lot of and has the hallmarks of old school homophobia. And for the feminists, similarly, the feminists tell me, but there is no internalized essential female. My whole life, especially lesbians tell me this, my whole life I've been butch. I've had to fight for my right to get a job, to have housing, because I've had people look at me because I don't wear frilly outfits. I don't wear dresses. I've never worn a dress, et cetera, et cetera. So how does this square when gay and lesbian organizations, or at least formally gay, lesbian, bisexual organizations have now taken on this mantra of an ideology that actually works against gay and lesbian and bisexual people because it essentializes behavior and essence as being internal to the self with absolute resistance to changing the social fabric. In the days that you and I were getting arrested in the back of paddy wagons because of various issues related to AIDS, the bottom line for homophobes was, eh, you're a butch woman, you should just be more girly or just become a man. Like, do like they do in Iran, become a man. You see what I'm saying? There's a stress there between the two sides. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm out of my depth here. I'm not, I'm not a psychologist and, um, and I'm not a student of the 
you know, of the trans movement currently. I'm just an observer and not a not a well-informed observer, I, I have to say. Um, sorry to say, but it's true. So I, I'm not, you know, I can't, I can't bring any expertise in this. I'm just a, an observer uh, of, of what you're saying. I don't, I don't really know much about the, the, the second form of conversion therapy, although I, I understand what you're saying, um, that uh, a psychologist or, or, or um, counselor might want to explore with a young person. Um, it, are you feeling is this about your attraction to the same sex or is this because um because you feel that way people are labeling you the other gender and and you need, now you're feeling like you're a girl if you're, you know, or, or boy. i don't i i don't have the knowledge to really comment on on that very you know, very usefully i guess i mean i i understand what you're saying well, in Provincetown, that's a traditionally mid to late 20th century style of recognition of sexuality, of homosexuality, unless it's changed very much. That was one of those places that people in New York, right after Gay Pride ended, they'd go to Provincetown or Fire Island. Those were the two top destinations to go and chill out after a week of partying. And this idea of sexuality was celebrated there was no thought that well the gay conversion therapy of the past was derided it was pushed away it was rejected and suddenly years later and currently we're in the throes of this head-to-head -head budding in the uk stonewall has had a lot of criticism over the past years but there's a new organization lgb alliance and this is an alliance that's saying, we have nothing to do with transgender identity. We wish them well, but we want to focus on sexuality and the fact that kids are still, gay kids are still committing suicide and attempting to commit suicide at high rates. And we need to address that. We need to address other forms of homophobia. We don't need to conflate gender with sexuality because they're not one and the same. In fact, they're not even on the same planet. Are you seeing the in Provincetown, such a archetypical gay town in the late 20th century, that is, are these ideas of, of gender ideology making it that way, such that speaking of homosexuality is now seen as anathema to the gay movement? No, I wouldn't go that far. I, I, I'd say that the Provincetown is not different in, in that respect from, from London or, 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 or New York. I mean, it's 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 not a insular uh, place that is still living in the 70s and 80s around uh, sort of sexual liberation. No, I think that, um, there are a lot of trans people here, um, and there and there always were. Um, they maybe weren't just not as prominent. Um, so I think the sensitivities around um, around inclusiveness for the trans community. And support for the trans community um, is is you know is, is just as much alive in Provincetown, and Provincetown is, is has moved along um, in that direction as well as as well as everyone else. It's not a it's not an isolated throwback or, or moment in time. Well, certainly the people who identify as transgender today uh, are everywhere, but there's 
a notion that somehow trans people or transgender people have always existed. And then there's this going back to Marsha P. Johnson, et cetera, whom I knew when I was living in New York. And he always said he was a transvestite. Somehow his saying this has skipped over in journalistic articles to his being transgender. So we seem to have left out the whole fun space of transvestitism and drag culture that seems to also get crushed in the rush to codify a transgender movement, if you catch my drift. I don't know if you've been to New York in the 90s, but there was a lovely bar there, Bardot, a huge transvestite club for singers, dancers, largely singers and performers like Lady Bunny, Raven O, Joey Arias. And I worry that this new lexicon of internalized genders sort of taking over a lot of our gay history because drag acts were part of gay culture. We sort of need to understand the difference between drag and what is today being called trans, no? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, for, for, for heterosexual folks, this is very confusing. Uh, so you talk about the serious issues of, of trans um, uh, uh, community and they, their minds immediately go to transvestites and drag. Um, that's, you know, that's what they think. Um, yeah, Provincetown has had a lot. There was, and I think still is, I'm not sure, there always was a, transit, uh, a, a, a tradition in Provincetown in the fall around October of Fantasia Fair. And Fantasia Fair was a transvestite celebration for a week. Um, where, where uh, this this was not. I, I don't think that it, it, it didn't have anything to do with uh, with women dressing as men. It was totally men dressing as women. And many of the men who came and uh, dressed as women openly um, were, for all intents and purposes, heterosexual. They would come with their wives. Um, and, um, you know, the locals would say, oh, this is the week for the, the, the tall women, <laughs> the transvestites. And it was a for them because they could openly sort of buy frocks and shoes and accoutrement that, um, you know, they, they, they couldn't, they didn't feel comfortable going to Macy's to buy. I mean, and, and, you know, and the vendors would and, and, and of course, it, it, you know, they were all, all different styles. Some people wanted the, you know, St. John suits and others wanted frilly, you know. And, and, and it was a fun thing. It was called Fantasia Fair. Um, and of course, today, I think that still continues. Um, today, you know, the main entertainment venues in Provincetown are still about drag. It's still drag. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm bothered by by drag. I always have been because I think it's a very, I think it's based. I don't mean to be you know overly serious here, but I, I I think it's based on a on a hatred of women. I think it's based very much on a, on a phobia about about uh, uh, women um, and making fun of women and over you know uh, characterizing. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're always tramps or they're, you know, they're, you know, 
they're outrageous. Um, I mean, it's fun. I don't. I don't mean to say I haven't enjoyed drag. I have, and sometimes it's very, very moving. Um, uh, and, and you know, the, the best are, are great, and and some are just wonderful impersonators of you know Judy Garland or or Marilyn Monroe or whatever. They're very talented artists. Um, but a lot of the sort of street drag and those sorts of shows are sort of body. I would say, you know, the humor is based on anti-women. A lot of the feminists and lesbians, in fact, intensely dislike drag for the same reasons you just mentioned. They also, though, have issues with the fact that drag was their number one hurdle to even get seen by lesbian and gay organizations because there's there was an investment even there, even for businesses. Look at New York City. When I moved to New York City, there were a handful of places for women. There were dozens upon dozens within a five-block radius of New York City. You couldn't throw a dead cat in the West Village mm -hmm. without hitting a gay bar, right? So I can understand where women are coming from when they criticize. Then the transgender movement hit forth, not at girls initially, it was at boys and young men. You have an interior gender, that's what you follow, and for many lesbians, it was lesbians who pointed out the problems of transgender identity ideology to me about eight, nine, year, uh, nine years ago, when they said, well, this is about reducing women to a stereotype in the very same way that drag is. We're not blackface. We're not a costume. Feminist Janice Raymond has said this when she critiques Sandy Stone. So there's a lot of historical criticism of not just drag culture, but what used to be a very infrequent transsexual being. This idea that we're supposed to exceptionalize the person as a medical anomaly, but even though there's no medicine behind this really. And on the other hand, now trans has grown from medicine to social manifestation, social contagion, depending on what experts you speak with. And somehow now everyone has a gender identity, but Tim, what happens if I don't? See, I don't have a gender identity because as a woman, as a lesbian, I've had to fight all of that nonsense. I've had to fight reductions about being gay. You men get it rough. You get murdered, you get beaten up. In many respects, you get the worst end of homophobia. Lesbians, we do get murdered and raped and, and killed at a lesser rate, perhaps around sexuality itself because the more common manifestation is we find two men at a table with me and my girlfriend and they're saying, so who's the man? And then can I watch? You don't usually get that from men. So that whole gamut of our sexuality being both not codified in law, you mentioned sodomy laws earlier. It's unsurprising that in so many countries, lesbianism isn't made illegal at all because women's right. sex doesn't <laughs> exist, right? Our sexuality is not worth a law <laughs> on the one hand. Meanwhile, you guys are getting stoned and whatever, beheaded. And, and then on the other side of that paradigm, paradoxically in, in cultures such as the West in the last 30 years, we get fetishized. We get this single white female type of film. And those were really in the 90s, quote unquote, lesbian filmmaking was fascinating to the kissing Jessica Stein, which also deserves to go in quotes because that was so like two straight women. And that was really weird. And then if you remember Vito Russo's Cellular Closet, lovely book, and then it's well worth to watch the movie version of his book. 
but it goes through very beautifully how gay men and women in cinema were represented from the panic sex, uh, the horrific spy espionage pieces out of Britain from the late 1950s and 60s onward to Shirley MacLaine and Audrey Hepburn as lovers and the suicide films, all these lesbians killing themselves, a few men killing themselves, Rupert Everett, his films, you know, always MI6, fascinating stuff, sometimes filmically beautiful, but until people like Todd Haynes Gay cinema had, and there were a few exceptions, mind you, but gay cinema had this very uh, liminal space of somehow having to codify itself, even readings of Hitchcock's Rope, right? I mean, that's considered, according to people like Slavoj Žižek, to be this ultimate masterpiece of, of phallocentric filmmaking, right? All in one shot, too. So imagine, the length has many metaphors, if you will. I do wonder though that in all of film history, it is women's films, it's lesbians films that have been the most troubling and invisible on the one hand or heterosexualized on the other. Things have gotten better the last, uh, since 9-11 in terms of gay culture, you know, democracy went out the window in one hand, but in many other respects, filmmaking art, all of that somehow settled out. As you mentioned, the Defense of Marriage Act and a lot of things sort of came to a fore when Americans realized, even conservative Americans, that this wasn't going to go away. So we needed to share the toys in the sandbox, as it were. But lesbians have been fighting a lot of the issues around the transgender narrative because they've been made to pay the price recently. I'll give you an example. On Friday, someone sent me an email that came to them from the dating app, it's supposed to be a gay and lesbian, I'm sorry, a lesbian and bisexual woman dating app called Her. Her is sending out newsletters to women. Friday morning, one of Her's users got a, an email with a link to click for one of their blog articles. It was a pharmaceutical intermediary company, a, a quote unquote clinic, but it's not a clinic, it's a fake clinic, a drug front that will not only supply women with microdosing of testosterone, but it, the article itself makes it so cool. It's almost replaced the club culture pre-COVID with methamphetamine with now you can do tea and, you know, men can, there's a, a whole pharmacy there for men who want to be women. So it's really troubling to me that now the very tools that are supposed to be serving lesbians and gay men are turning against them. And men are reporting the same thing, by the way. It's called the boxer short ceiling, where gay men are being told if they don't have sex with women who identify as men, that they are transphobic. And lesbians have been getting this for the last decade. I've been investigating what's called the cotton ceiling by lesbians over the last 10 years, because so many reports have emerged of, wait, we can believe that there are people who want to identify as the opposite sex, but that doesn't mean I should have to sleep with them. And this is now the biggest problem along with safety in women's prisons, the safety of women in sports, especially contact sports. How have you witnessed this from where you are in Massachusetts? Because it's not just about drag shows anymore. This lobby is taking on the very rights of lesbian and gay men, such that lesbians are being told that if you don't have sex with this man who has a female penis, you're a transphobe. I have just interviewed a woman who lost her job because of saying the simple fact of sex is immutable, men are not women. 
Uh, it, it, you've obviously, you know, know so much about this, uh, Julian, that I, I'm not aware of, and you're educating me. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of um, breathless in terms of, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just not aware of it. There used to be, you know, back, not that, you know, not that long ago, but more in my time with, you know, the debate was at, at women's music festivals, you know, safe space for women to uh, be women. And it was largely lesbian, right? The, the, was it the Michigan uh, festival and that sort of thing? Um, deciding that that only cisgender women, um, uh, not uh, trans women, uh, could attend, and and that 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 debate I I, I followed. I don't know, you know, um, uh, I, I didn't have an investment in it, um, but I, I I didn't know it's gone, um, you know, to this length. I I I guess I do want to agree with you and reinforce your your feelings about um, lesbians. Um, as women who love other women and who are emotionally and sexually attracted to other women um, as, um, as a distinct group um, do lack standing, I think. Um, they're, um, yeah, I, 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 I feel, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of it is about money and power um, and um, a person um, who maybe a trans woman um, just may feel more privileged um, than uh, a lesbian in terms of asserting herself um, and um, and demanding and um, and and um, you know really 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 um, uh, articulating and asserting uh, her rights uh, where lesbians haven't have never felt that kind of power. A lot of these organizations, including the HRC, which has taken up a mandate of pushing transgender narratives, the ACLU has been putting out more tweets over the past few months on trans than on any other death, death row inmates, forget it. That's what the ACLU used to do, but no. I think they'll be happy to tweet if a death row inmate identifies as transgender, but basically their mandate has been to crash women's and girls sports and to call anyone a transphobe, including like I'm far to the left, but the ACLU is more than happy to say that everyone who disagrees that men or boys should be competing on women's and girls sports is a right wing Christian Bible thumper. I mean, this is how it's going so far. These organizations know that many of us are very far on the left. And what it's done is it's fragmented various parties. Hasn't yet happened in the US, but definitely in the UK, women have left labor. It's been going on for three or four years now. So labor is likely to not win an election for some time because of this. Newer parties are being formed, but it will not surprise you that the Women's Equality Party kicked out women. Uh, Heather Brunskill Evans, a philosopher who was part of that party, got kicked out. Venice Allen, a member of the Labour Party, was kicked out. Meanwhile, there's a lot of questions going on about the ways in which transgender narratives and so-called rights are being fictionalized in the sense of nobody would disagree that someone who identifies as transgender should not be discriminated against, should not be hurt, should have the same rights as you or me or anyone else. I mean, that's not even under discussion. The real issue is why in a woman's prison, 
now that men know they can transfer to a woman's prison if they identify as a woman, you're having thousands identify as women from the US to the UK so they can get transferred over. And then you have cases of women being raped in these prisons because the wokery, the capture of the transgender lobby is so great that even within the prison system, you have people that don't want to be perceived as transphobic. It's happening. And the HRC, GLAD, these are two organizations that in recent years have been pushing for the visibility of trans people and have worked very little to not at all on the visibility of gay and lesbian people. Well, that is arguable. Do we need more visibility? Should we maybe be dismantling NGOs once we have addressed and remedied certain issues? These are discussions I'd say that need to happen, but what we're facing now are the, are the clashes of rights. The clashes of rights where I, a woman, if I want to go to a homeless shelter, I do not want a man on the next bed to me or a domestic abuse shelter or a hospital ward. And the reality, Tim, is that more and more of these situations are arising because more and more men are identifying as transgender. Because as you probably know, with laws like the Equality Act in some countries or other laws, that a man nearly has to say, I feel like a woman inside, and he gets all the access to women's spaces. So we're going back to a very deeply seeded misogyny that's having real life consequences for women that go well beyond drag. Like, I have problems with drag, but I'll take drag. Thank you very much, if you catch my meaning. In the, I think in the olden days, uh, uh, the, 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 the police or the authorities allowed drag only if at the end of the act you took, a, you know, you, you, you revealed, you know, that, that, that you took off your wig. That was the old style drag, right? At the end, it was a reveal, um, so that it was entertainment and not not uh, not sacred. Uh, um, gosh, you've given me a lot to think about, Julian. Um, I you're you're so steeped in this. I I I don't know how to comment. I, I I'm just keep focusing in on um, the rights of of women, whether they are lesbian or straight women, who who do feel. Um, vulnerable, I guess. Um, and um, now there's not a lot of debate about whether that's legitimate because it gets put among people that, you know, I connect with on the liberal side, on the left. Um, it gets put into that basket of you must be for this or you're, you're you know, you're a transphobe. Um, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've pondered this, but it, it isn't affecting, you know, um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm lazy. I don't, I don't, it's not affecting me. I'm not thinking about it, but I, I don't, if I had children, <clears throat> if I had, if I had a daughter um, who felt uh, very vulnerable because, um, you know, there, 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 there was a space where, where, um, you know, a, a, a trans girl or a trans woman, um, um, uh, was in you know in a private space um, or or competing on, on a sports team. Um, I, I I I guess I, I, you know I, I could understand a parent feeling uncomfortable about that. And, I mean I think the left does sort of shrug it off and say oh grow up you know and stop being so you know allow all the flowers to bloom. Um, there's not a 
there's not an issue here. Um, so let them go into the girls' locker room and let them be on the team. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know where, where the right, you know, where, where the, where the human right um, uh, dimension comes into this, and, and where, where it's what, what's fair and what's not, and what's what's appropriate. I mean, you're you're right because this is difficult because, as you just said, it's a clash of rights, um, and um, and it feels like for one to win, the other has to lose. And, you know, fair-minded people don't like to think that way. We don't like to think for for you to win, I have to lose. Um, we want to make sure everybody wins. Thank you.